Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today for our postmodern conservative series, for our third interview in remembrance of my late mentor, Peter Lawler, I am joined by Yuval Levine. Mr. Levine is a renowned public intellectual and, in a way, the standard bearer for the reform conservative faction that's really been the hope of reasonable or moderate conservatives over the last decade or more. And he was also connected to Peter Lawler through the President's Council on Bioethics, another rare attempt in public life to be reasonable and indeed thoughtful, even philosophical and theological, about the issues of human life and everything related to our responsibilities in light of our new technological powers. Uh, Mr. Levin, thank you very much for joining me, and please introduce yourself to our audience before we get to our conversation. Well, thank you very much for having me, and thank you for doing this, to remember Peter and to help people learn from him as we were able to learn from him in his life. I am, as you said, a a think tank scholar. I uh, I work at the American Enterprise Institute. I run a division of the American Enterprise Institute devoted to the study of social, cultural, and constitutional questions, and really ultimately focused on the study of American institutions. That's the focus of my own work as well, and uh, I've also worked in government some as a White House staffer and as a congressional staffer, and so I work at the intersection of theory and practice in Washington. Indeed, I write as an admirer. We spoke briefly before when I reviewed your latest book, A Time to Build, about which we shall talk to conclude, since it doesn't feel like it's a time to build, and indeed that is why it is a time to build. As we see a wasteland around us, or fear one, this is the precise necessary time to deal with the matter. But first of all, please tell me, how did you become part of the President's Council on Bioethics, and how do you think about your work on that short-lived, but at least for certain of us, very impressive institution? Well, thank you. I was a student of Leon Cass in graduate school at the University of Chicago. I went to graduate school after a few years of working in Washington and uh, got a PhD in the Committee on Social Thought at Chicago. Cass was a professor there and soon became uh, my teacher, my mentor there, more than anyone else that I studied with. And I was still there working on my dissertation when uh, President George W. Bush invited Cass to create the President's Council on Bioethics and to chair it in 2001. And so because I'd had some experience in Washington and because I was a student of his, he asked me to come with him. And I served as a researcher and then a staff director of the President's Council on Bioethics while CAST was running it from about 2002 until about 2005 when I left for the White House. It was really an extraordinary experience. I mean, the council was a very unusual public body. It was sort of at the meeting point of uh, academics and politics and was devoted to a set of questions that, at least in Cass's hands, turned out to be wonderfully broad and deep about the kinds of challenges that biotechnology presents to a modern society. And the commission consisted of, at various times, between about 14 and 18 members who were mostly academics, some scientists, some physicians, and a fair number of scholars in the humanities and political science and philosophy. And it had a fairly broad range of views, and its purpose was really to try to offer some wisdom and advice to policymakers, but also to the broader public, about the questions that in that moment were extraordinarily prominent in our politics because of the stem cell debate and arguments about cloning and otherwise but subjects that are always important to a modern society about how we use the powers that science provides us and how we think about the kinds of changes they might affect in the human condition. 
Yes, indeed, and I think perhaps that's what makes it such a rare sort of institution, given the implications of biotechnology and the insistence on developing all sorts of new powers in this regard, and perhaps more broadly the importance of medicine and healthcare and research to politics and our way of life. It seems like it's very, very hard to be thoughtful about this without being thrown off as irrelevant so far as the future is concerned. The idea that came into my mind was there was no debate in America about nuclear weaponry when Project Manhattan was underway. The greatest power of modern science, which came, as some like to point out, before we even figured out what the genome is, before we even figured out what DNA is in the first place, and there was really not much talk about it since it was such an urgent matter. But biotechnology is at least as powerful and as dangerous to hear people talk about it. And even though there is no urgency of war, we still indeed do not have much by way of discussion about it. This struck me for that reason as a very improbable, unlikely and very inspiring at the same time enterprise. It was one of the reasons why I became a distant admirer of Leon Cass, of whom I had heard since he was a Straussian student. And it also is what led me to consider very seriously something that Peter Lawler used to say that what Strauss would call the conflict between nature and history in modern America is really the conflict between social construction and biotechnology between a theory of persuasion that we now call woke, and on the other hand, something that is not software but hardware. The notion that you could in fact change human nature, you don't have to change history, you could do something more drastic. And it's quite possible that in a neo-Darwinian technological way, nature have a decisive victory over history that we would nevertheless learn to regret. So mm -hmm. it is a very complicated matter, and while we are in need of guidance, we have to become thoughtful about this matter, it doesn't seem that we can, or it's at any rate very, very difficult. Somehow it goes against the grain. Yeah, I think that's very true. It, it's a subject that reaches to a depth that we're not accustomed to reaching in our political debates. And I think you get at one important reason why that is, which is that it threatens to make malleable what is otherwise the constant and unchangeable fact about human political life, which is human nature, the character of the human person at the outset. The core idea, at least for a lot of conservatives, very broadly understood of various sorts in approaching politics is that human nature is the constant and we build institutions and frameworks and modes of uh, approaching the truth that take that as a given and try to build around it in ways that might form us given our nature to be able to be free, to be able to be just, to be able to seek the truth. If we can change human nature, or at least if we can change our biological presets then we're in an entirely different place and we confront a form of human power that is unlike anything else we've seen in the human experience. And I think that is what has worried a lot of people on the right about the potential of biotechnology to be transformative in some destructive ways. It's an interesting thing, though. You know, Peter was always, in my mind, a voice of skepticism about that concern. It always seemed to Peter like the idea that we could actually change human nature with these technologies was nonsense, was arrogance itself, and that what we were doing was not nearly as profound as that. So that while he was certainly alarmed about many of the things that troubled a lot of other conservatives about these biotechnologies, he never really seemed to believe that they could actually be as transformative of human nature as some people are worried about them, 
like Cass or in other ways, Francis Fukuyama, who Peter disagreed with quite profoundly on the council, seemed to imagine was possible. And so uh, Peter always had a kind of confidence that obviously was rooted in his Catholicism. This just wouldn't be as profound as it seemed. And in fact, that it might open up opportunities and unleash human desires that could point in the direction of a kind of religious revival rather than a permanent loss of our connection with our nature. Yeah. Peter was guided by his perhaps favorite phrase that everything in America is always getting better and worse yes. in different ways. And part of that was what he thought of as realism for Christians. That is to say that sometimes it is crisis that wakes people up to the truth about the desires of their own hearts for the deepest longings of the human heart. Anybody who believes in a transcendent God will have to concede the strength of that argument that indolence is not conducive, but instead crisis is conducive to reflection on our limits. So things could get better for us in a spiritual way at the same time as they are in fact getting worse for us in other ways, technologically yeah. or politically. His optimism was in fact quite complicated by this awareness of, you can call it theodicy. Mm-hmm. There's something good that comes out of crisis that evil does tend to the good, but in shocking ways. Although he was not complacent, he did indeed suggest that what we may try to do has a shocking ambition to it, but what we can achieve, not just what we have achieved, but what we can achieve is in fact very, very limited. That necessity is the one thing we need to keep our minds on, lest we try something catastrophic. He was not afraid that we might end up gods inadvertently. He was only afraid that we might do monstrous things as Mm -hmm. beings and especially tyrannies have done before in their attempt to recreate human nature. He wasn't blind to those kinds of dangers since he was a committed anti-communist throughout his life. But indeed, he doesn't seem to have thought that the application of American industrial power and the kind of popular desperation and the hope built out of that could lead to some terrifying new projects. In short, what uh, dominates, it seems, the imaginations of our science fiction was not at all realistic in his eyes. And that, of course, in a way remains to be seen. Since he claimed that this is human nature, it will have to be evident. It will have to be empirically proven. I connect this confidence of his to the notion that became more and more important to him throughout his years on the council, which was dignity. Yes. The book of essays he published during his time there is, of course, called Modern and American Dignity. Modernity and America are not quite the same thing. There are other modern regimes, but there are always these connections, especially when it comes to technology and what we want out of it and what it might do to us. His insistence on dignity has this strange character that it is dignified to recognize necessity, not to wish for impossible things, not to act in a mad way, to be restrained within certain limits. It is recognition of necessity that makes it possible and necessary indeed for us to be moderate. But the problem, of course, is that you have to insist on dignity and you have to insist on necessity since it is perfectly possible for us to ignore both. And he seems to have thought that we need very much to insist on human dignity in practical ways in public life, or else we might indeed be tempted to ignore necessity as well and do something mad. Yeah, you know, I think, Peter, his insistence on dignity, which really brought something distinct and unique and special to his work with the council and to his work in general in those years, 
was always, to my mind, rooted in this insistence that the religious traditionalists who emphasized our relational character as beings with obligations are right, and yet that the more libertarian folks who argue about the human person as free and rights-bearing are also right even though they disagree with each other and their different emphases bring them to different conclusions about a lot of practical political questions, there's just this contradiction at the bottom of modern life that we are both relational and obligation-based beings and free and rights-bearing beings. And it's not so contradictory if you begin from the premise that the human person is made in a divine image and that all human persons are equal as a result. And so I think that Peter's idea of dignity, which in some ways was so novel and distinct in a lot of these debates, is actually very deeply rooted in a kind of Augustinian conception, but ultimately really a Jewish and Christian conception of the human person. And Peter insisted that this was a foundational American idea and not an import into the American regime. You know, dignity is not a term that occurs in a lot of our founding documents. It's not a term that Americans are naturally at ease with. Even in some of our more philosophically sophisticated debates, dignity often feels like a European term that is somehow imported into American political categories. But Peter, drawing on Arrestus Brownson and drawing on the kind of Southern tradition that he always sought to emphasize, Peter thought dignity was absolutely essential to the American idea of the human person and that we were really done a disservice by the kind of polarity that's created in an argument between libertarians and traditionalists. It blinded us to some of the most important things about the human person that were especially significant when you talk about biotechnology. Yes, indeed. So it seems that somehow human nature emerges more clearly when it's torn up or split apart. And yet he pointed out, I think, quite plausibly that since we see that there is something right on either side of the great American debate, it should be possible to reconcile these two sides in a practical way, of course. Prudentially, you don't know just how strong a coalition could be, just how long-lasting a consensus can be, circumstances can sneak up on you. And it is, of course, of the essence of dignity that it requires human action. It is something that has to be asserted. It will not assert itself. It will not simply be effective, although it is simply true. We may say that the certainty of the principles somehow doesn't transmit fully into the certainty of our conclusions when we reason from those principles. I think that's right. You know, there's a deep awareness of this challenge of prudence in a lot of what Peter had to say. It, there were times, and certainly in the course of the work of the Bioethics Commission, Peter joined the council in 2003, so a year and a half, almost two years into its work, and he entered into a conversation that had been dominated by a certain kind of rationalist debate. Robbie George of Princeton, who is more of a kind of Thomistic approach to these questions, uh, and then even some voices on the left, Michael Sandel and others, tried to have a debate about some of these questions that would happen in the terms of academic philosophy. And Peter, like Leon Cass himself, brought to these arguments a very different set of terms, a much more humanistic set of terms, for him, I think, an Augustinian set of terms, that were much more comfortable with contradiction and willing to accept that what seems contradictory on the surface or as a practical matter is actually rooted in a deeper coherence and truth that doesn't have to be able to express itself in formulaic kinds of prescriptions. He was therefore able to be much more at ease with the ways in which these ideas of dignity and also the tension, as you say, between theory and practice were just facts of human life. 
And at some point, our challenge is to deal with them and to deal with them prudentially. We can't expect that they will be resolved conceptually and then that the concepts can be applied directly to political and social life. Peter was always, I think, much more at ease with the fact of contradiction in the human experience, at least in this world. Yeah, the watchword of his combination of his Catholic faith and his Socratic and Straussian studies was that you got to be realistic. You have to be willing to face the facts as we experience them. And in our experience, we have never had the perfection that we demand out of an abstract conception. For that reason, abstract conceptions have to be at least somewhat suspicious. You have to examine what their implications or their assumptions are because there may be deceptions and self-deception at work. Our capacity to imagine things far surpasses our capacity to understand, which in turn far surpasses our capacity to do things. A certain modesty is required, a certain form of moderation, even in our ambitions. Somehow, if we wish to do too much or we wish to do too much too soon, we are not even able to see things as they really are. We're not even able to see the obvious, that is to say, our experience, even our everyday lives, because we're busy throwing that out in order to achieve something else that is essentially a creature of the imagination. Mm -hmm. This way in which the urgent can simply run away with any consideration of the important seems to have to do with, on the one hand, our political partisanship, a certain desire to inflict defeats and to secure victories, and at a deeper level with what, after Tocqueville and Pascal, Peter talked about as American restlessness. In America, you gotta be in a hurry. You gotta get what you can while you can. There are eternities of darkness before and after you that have to lash you into activity, even when you don't know what you should be doing. There are certain dangers of the urgent that seem to be more an American problem than simply a modern or simply a human problem. With American resources come these kinds of dangers that, since there's so much uncertainty, and it would seem that our very powers make our lives more uncertain. Mm -hmm. For one thing, the more we think we can live forever, the scarier it is to deal with any uncertainty. For another thing, the more we think we can do, even we have not proved that we can achieve something, the harder it is to believe that there's anything we can't do, or that there are any limits, and therefore that there is anything stable. It's just harder and harder to speak persuasively about these matters, to tell people to recur to experience, to the tried and true, to what would make them proud of themselves and confident since they know what they're talking about, they know what they've been through, as opposed to that which makes them quite weak and at the same time incredibly eager, what is merely imagined and has not much contact with reality. I think that's quite right, and it runs deep to the character of Peter's work, but also in a lot of ways to the character of his person. I mean, I was always struck that Peter's power as a teacher and even as a friend and interlocutor, had to do with the deep sympathy that he had for the human condition. He understood that everyone at some level was dissatisfied and unfulfilled, looking for something, and that there's also something about the condition of modern life that leaves us restless, that tells us that we should be happy with an enormous amount of freedom, when we really know that that's not actually what makes us happy at the end of the day. And so that actual human beings can never be quite as happy as our society tells us to be with all the freedom we have. We're always eager for something else, for a different role to play in life. And that restlessness, which is certainly a source of enormous anxiety, is also a source of hope. It's what sends us searching for something more. 
And I think Peter approached other human beings with a sense that we were all in this condition, and so that there was something to appreciate about everyone. I think this really ran deep for him, and it was why he was such an appealing teacher. He always seemed to have something to offer more than what this moment in the life of our society offers. But he also was just, he, he had an understanding and a sympathy for the situation people were in. He found arrogant people ridiculous. He found miserable people lovable. And that's just a great way to make friends. Yeah, you cannot really defend recourse to experience unless you think that being human is all in all pretty good that it is choice-worthy, that it is ultimately dignified. So there is a certain connection between his temper and his habit, his calling as a teacher, his joy in conversation and in discovery, and his governing assumption that if you look around, you'll see more good than bad, all in all, that there is always something to reassure you in human nature, and that indeed we always try too hard, but we're not essentially misguided. Um, You know, he used to enjoy using phrases like the greatness and the misery of the guy in the Mm tracksuit. Americans jog too much. You know, I have a friend who jogged, she said, until the day she accidentally caught her face in the window of a car as she was jogging and saw a grimace that shocked her more than whatever had shocked her into jogging. (laughs) She thought that she was going to enjoy her life more from now on, live in the present a bit more and be less ascetic, so to speak. Sure, there's a lot to be said for that wisdom, but of course, there's also a lot to be said for the people who do jog a lot and do all these other things to be disciplined. It's not bad to remember that there is uncertainty in the future that should drive you, that things are not guaranteed. And one way of dealing with that is being more attentive to things right now. And another way is to plan to be prepared for things that might come ahead. Americans would need both. And presumably, since differences of temper and habituation can supply plenty, It could arrange people in these ways so that they can supply, however querulously, each other's defects. And someone like Peter could say, well, there's truth in what both of these people want. There's truth in both of these tempers and the habits that they engender. Neither is simply wrong, but of course neither is simply right, which happily could suggest, again, that being human is pretty good since we can supply each other's defects. We do not need to see our contradictions or our disagreements with others as a cause of war, necessarily. Yeah, I think there is always in a powerful way this sense of internal balance in the way that Peter tried to approach political debates. Or as you say before, one of his favorite phrases, that things are always getting better and worse. I stole that phrase for the opening words of a book I wrote in 2016, The Fractured Republic, and I originally attributed them to Peter, and I sent him a manuscript of the text a few months before it came out. And he said, I absolutely should not attribute that to him. That comes from Tocqueville, and I shouldn't attribute it to anybody. It's just the truth. I have to tell you, I I don't actually think it does come from Tocqueville in that form. I think that is Peter, and in a very profound way, it is Peter. It is really how he thought about things. There's always a cause for hope in the very fact of crisis, but there's always a seed of crisis in every moment of confidence in social life. And, you know, that means you can never be 100% into anything, but you also can't 100% reject anything in what our society is about. People have their reasons. The reasons are often rooted in something that yearns for dignity 
And that's a lesson that I've always tried to learn from Peter. It's very important to keep it in mind, especially in the political life of a divided country, a polarized country, where people tend to seek only what's wrong in the people they disagree with. And uh, it's important to understand that nobody wakes up in the morning to do harm in the world, almost nobody. We're trying to do good in different ways, and that's what creates the disputes we have. Yeah, that's exactly right. And of course, Peter returned the favor he took from your Fractured Republic book, the phrase selective nostalgia, and with his typical sense of humor, said, well, what's wrong with selective nostalgia? We should have some selective nostalgia. After all, the past wasn't all bad, but of course, it wasn't all good. So you have to have discernment in your selection, figure out which things we should hold on to, in which ways we should be past-oriented, just like we have to figure out in which ways we should be future-oriented. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and how to be selective. I have to say, I've found myself wishing for Peter in recent weeks as we've thought about statues in America, how to think about our past, what to tear down and what to keep up, and just how to approach that question of a past that contains much good and much evil. I do wish we had his guidance on that subject. It was his kind of subject. Yeah, it seems that we are presented with these options where either outrage at vandalism or outrage at past injustice has to lead us to do something quite drastic and uh, either way make enemies of a large part of America. And that's surely a crazy idea. It's very tempting, but madness not infrequently is because indeed there is some truth to this. Perhaps Peter could say, as a Southerner who was a committed Union man and a qualified admirer of Lincoln, that, after all, the Southern Civil War general statues are America's original participation trophies. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody in the nation can live with this other status that it's sort of like other statues, but sort of not. It's like participation trophies are supposed to make people feel good, but they sort of don't. Because everybody knows that, in fact, the winners won, the losers lost, and there are certain consequences that follow on success and failure. Presumably, there is some way for leaders and for intellectuals to articulate that position, sometimes more seriously and sometimes more comically, according to the urgencies of the moment. But presumably, it is not impossible for people to recognize that it's good that the Union won that Americans do look at each other as Americans. Indeed, there would not be conflicts otherwise. It's the demands of being American that make people ask perhaps too much or too eagerly of each other, in a too demanding a way, leading to crisis or at least conflict. But that itself is testimony to the victory of the Union, and so presumably at least that should be affirmed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it points to this very complicated idea of moderation that I think is at the heart of a lot of what Peter had to offer. And you point out there's a certain comedy in that moderation. And I think that was actually a lot of the power of the way he offered it, which is as a way of recognizing the tragedy of life, but also the absurdity of life. And that ultimately moderation involves that sometimes, that it's a way for us to acknowledge that all of us are in this somewhat comical situation that is also a tragic situation. The right reaction to it is moderation in a very profound way. Not moderation as just finding a middle ground between two extremes, but moderation as a disposition, as a way of life in a classical sense, I think is central to the teaching that Peter ultimately had to offer. Yeah, moderation is primarily the opposite of madness. And of course, madness can come in varieties. It can be an overweening arrogance that dares all but does not dare well. But it could also be paralysis. It could be an unwillingness to act. Moderation requires that we realize 
we act within our limits, but within our limits we must act. It is a good guard against self-importance, which seems to be the desperate thing prompting people these days. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot of this in relation to your latest book, A Time to Build, where you talk about how we have gotten into the habit of using institutions as personal platforms, sort of all of us trying to become celebrities, trying to become much greater than we really know we are, trying to achieve much more than we really deserve or could deal with if we had it. It's not just that our institutions shouldn't be exploited for the sake of a few self-important persons. It's that it's not good for them either. It doesn't help anybody to try to be that important, to try to decide issues for the nation or in despite of the nation, which is really what is being proposed. Another one of Peter's protégé, a friend of mine, Pitspiliakos, points out that every time people say, you know, this election, this is the one that counts, it's win or die, what they mean is not that they have an argument for winning this election, they just have an argument against all elections, since you will lose one day. You know, you can't win them all. You have to be American even when you can't win them all. And America has to be a country where you don't need to win them all in order to go on with life in a dignified, decent way. And it seems like that's why moderation has to be governed. Yeah. In this sense, moderation is a kind of guard against deformation, which gets to that argument about the way in which we make our institutions into platforms for performance. What that really is, is a deformation. And to recognize that there are proper forms for the human person and for society and its institutions is, I think, to recognize our constraints in a way that is ultimately moderating and that forces us to see, as you say, that we can't win them all and that we should want life to be such that we don't have to. Of course, this is not a popular argument in a moment when people feel that catastrophe is looming or that uh, it's their opportunity. This is your chance to make catastrophe happen in order to secure revenge. I have thought about this problem of anger in politics more than I would have preferred since I share Peter's sense of humor and the taste for more comedy in life, if at all possible, than tragedy. But it seems to me that people are so desperately hanging on to anger and catastrophe because they view it as a theory of causation. It starts by saying that everything bad is because of those other guys. And it follows from that that if you get rid of those other guys, uh, you can get back to things being good. That you can finally be effective practically as a political actor by doing your worst. There's therefore this plausibility to the madness that comes with the desire to think of everything as a war. Wars, especially against abstract nouns, are of course a pastime of American politics, especially Mm -hmm. in the last couple of generations. And it's a very unhelpful attitude, but it's understandable really, because we do not have the thing to which you're referring. Forms have certain powers of their own. If you try to run an institution in a crazy way, it will not work. And indeed, that is also true of America. Whoever is elected to office and tries to run the country, whatever people, by the consent of the electorate, have any kind of influence, even outside of office, it has to be consensual. Well, if they're not up to the job or if they try impossible things, then they will not achieve that much. The institutions in themselves are guides. As you say in your book, they form us before we are able to do anything formative. It is important to realize that forms have a power of their own. They are not quite causal, because if you don't see it, you can screw things up. Just like if you don't know how to use a car, you can very easily destroy it, and perhaps yourself or others in the process. 
but even if they are not causal, there is something about forms that is very, very important because they retain knowledge and they prepare us to know how to deal with things ourselves. And so it would seem that even within partisan conflict, even when we say we have to act in such and such a way to counteract a bad action on the part of our adversaries, were we to do this within the limits of the institutional forms at our disposal, we would be moderated to some extent by the requirements of forms themselves, by the requirements of consent, and by habits and practices that gradually reveal to us when we're going too far. Yeah, and there's a way in which forms understood that way can be constraining and moderating. And I also think that there's something of a search for meaning in our catastrophism, a sense that we can't take politics seriously unless it is about life and death. So that it must be the case that what's at stake in this election is absolutely existential and the fate of the country rests on it. Otherwise, why would we be interested in it? And I think that in itself is a kind of extremism, a sort of radicalism that doesn't take normal life seriously, that doesn't give the everyday its due. Our politics is about very important things, even when it is not about life and death issues, which it generally isn't. Somehow we can't bring ourselves to take it seriously unless we can come to believe that we are at the precipice, that we are facing the abyss and everything depends on our beating those guys this time rather than just saying things could be better if we did them this way. It's no longer enough to say so for a lot of us thinking about politics. And I think that leads to this kind of catastrophism. You know, it's rooted in a politics that doesn't take the life of the larger society seriously enough, so that I think it's a deeper failure that's very much connected to this deformation of institutions. Yeah, I agree. In certain ways, we have breached the distinction between the private and the public, which is the most forming of our forms, mm -hmm. and we are paying the price for it. To try to politicize one's unhappiness through anger to institutional destruction is a very dangerous habit, and it cannot long be indulged without consequences. I wish I had Peter's wisdom and his gift for putting things in an inoffensive way. Nobody could hate Peter, even if they disagreed yeah. with him. He made friends far easier than most of us maintain our friendships, if truth be told. Mm -hmm. But since I do not have that turn of mind, I can say more bluntly that it's, it's just that people are miserable and they know it. Yeah. So much of the anger comes out of a shame, out of a sense of self-loathing and disappointment that life has not been good. We all know that happy people do not behave like this. And we all realize that we see catastrophic things happening or being said on TV screens, but then go on with life. People do not in their everyday lives do catastrophic things. But as you said, somehow the TV screens have become more important to us in certain ways than our own lives. And that does suggest that there are deep problems that we would have to address in real life if our more elevated political and spiritual concerns can be dealt with in turn adequately. And I think comedy is indeed very important for this. From Mark Twain to stand-up comedy, it is always important for somebody in America to be able to tell people that there are certain things about everyday life that are quite silly that people who think they are very smart are not that smart, and things that are done on an everyday basis have bad consequences or bad premises. And there are certain philosophical implications of that comic attitude, that is to say that our everyday lives reveal our nature. 
the things that we do when we are not particularly angry or motivated by political conflict, the things we do every day because we kind of believe this is how we should be going on with our lives. They reveal our nature and therefore they lead to insight. We could know ourselves, deal with ourselves a little better and moderate our expectations, somewhat moderate our self-importance somewhat and also therefore moderate our tendency to blame everybody else for what's wrong with us. Yeah, I, mean, I, I tend to think that's just the disposition that we need. But as you say, it's very hard to argue for it in ways that don't feed into the culture of taking offense and the, the culture of polarized debate. It's part of the reason I miss Peter as much as I do, is that he had this capacity, this way of speaking into the moment that somehow was inoffensive because it was sympathetic. It spoke these truths in ways that understood the peculiar circumstances of the people doing comical or absurd or ridiculous or even dangerous things. It could understand why that might be in ways that seemed true from the inside, so that even when he was mocking something that you or I might be engaged in, we could see that he was right, that there was something about that that understood us better than we understood ourselves. And that kind of teacher, that kind of observer or guide is just the most valuable human type in a time of crisis, and I, I, I miss it. Yes, me too. I, I also wonder how could he have done so well. The more I hold these conversations, the more I learn from other people, some of whom I simply did not know before meeting Peter, about the various ways in which he helped people through his friendship, from friendly advice to help with their careers. He was very practical. He had a sense for mm -hmm. how human beings live their lives that is much in need. He seems to have understood that, given the uncertainty of American life, we no longer live in an age where a man would simply take up his father's job. That's the same yeah. craft, the same name, where parents would woo a wife for a son. This doesn't happen anymore. And freedom means that you get choices, but you have to put in the work. You can't take things for granted. There's all this added uncertainty that feeds our restlessness since what if I'm not going to get the things that I'm supposed to get out of life? Or what if other people have got much more than I have and I would like to have much more than I deserve for that reason? So there's, you know, there's a lot of this. <laughs> it's how we live now. We have many good things, but we also pay a price for it and we have to deal with it. And it seems like we do need to have this sympathetic awareness that not even wisdom should be tyranny, that you need to be sympathetic and get the consent of the people whom you tell, I know what's really eating you, yeah. that we should never be contemptuous of our fellow citizens for that reason. There is something in their misery and there's something in their ambitions that is deeply human and sometimes touches on greatness. That's something that we try hard to achieve for ourselves. It's something that we know for ourselves when we do not have it, we're ashamed of. We should understand that other people are also this way. It's a disposition that could hardly be more countercultural just now, but I think that's why it's uh, so badly needed. <laughs> yes, indeed. I think that this is the paradoxical uh, situation we find ourselves now. What is most obviously needed is hardest to get at, and it will be a test of what we can do to provide for our own problems, to see in ourselves not merely a crisis, but our resources, to retrieve the things that we have forgotten that can help see us through. If indeed we see that in certain ways we are lacking, it's not just other people who are lacking, also we in certain ways are lacking. Yeah. Well, Mr. Levin, thank you very much for joining me. It was a pleasure to talk to you, to reminisce about Peter, and indeed to look at his attitude, his thought, and his temper, both his inclination as much as his judgment, the taste for sympathetic, friendly, democratic irony. 
to see how this sheds light on our own concerns now and how it might assuage these concerns. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for doing this to keep Peter's memory alive and to help those of us who knew and loved him uh, appreciate him as he deserves. Thank you, sir, for saying that. It's, uh, it's an honor. All the best. Thank you.